Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Let me read this morning an introduction to our message that I think would have great appropriateness for this occasion. Jeremiah chapter 10, starting in verse 6. There is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like thee. But idol worshipers are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of a craftsman and the hands of a goldsmith, violent and purple are their clothing. These idols are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who has made the earth by His power, who established the worlds by His wisdom, and by His understanding He has stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from His storehouses. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. But the portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. I hope you feel this morning as we read that scripture, the awesomeness of that passage about our God. And in some ways, the exclusiveness of that as we read that portion of Scripture. What a great statement, especially what a great statement in light of the first commandment that we'll be looking at this morning, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, that commandment is a powerful no and a powerful yes at the same time. Of course, you can imagine the no of that statement. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, That seems to be obvious. No other gods shall you engage or entertain in your life other than me. But the first commandment is also a very powerful yes. And that yes is that while you're putting all these other gods out of your existence in life, the encouragement is to embrace and to build upon a life that is rich in the worship of the one true God. You see, we all seek a God for our lives. Do you know that? We all seek a God for our lives. God-seeking 
is inherent in the very nature of man. I love what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God, when He created man, set eternity in His heart. So there is a naturalness of man to pull himself beyond himself and look for other things that he can worship. That's why when you look on the walls of caves of ancient peoples, there's worship there. That's why you go into tribes of all cultures, there's worship there. That's why even in a modern, fast-paced, informational age, the tendency of our lives is to go beyond ourselves and find something that we can worship that we believe will bring life to us. We're all God-seeking. We're all God-seekers. But our need, our most critical need, our most desperate need, is in that seeking that we find the right one. That we find the right God. A generation ago, A.W. Tozer was considered one of the great evangelicals of his day. And today, most of the books that he's written are now considered, even in our day, modern-day classics. Some of them are out of print, but uh, you would do well in your library if at some point in time you would get this small little book that he wrote called The Knowledge of the Holy. It is a book that will expand your thoughts about God beyond which oftentimes you see in modern-day writings. And in this opening chapter, he starts out by saying why we must think rightly about God. I want to read just a portion of it to you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worship worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. We tend by the secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about Him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We could predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Well, those are pretty lofty thoughts, aren't they? Because what you think about God today is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about your life, about your existence, about your choices, about your destiny. Last week, Dan Gerald opened a new series for us, Carving Out a Godly Culture. So what are the elements upon which we build a godly culture? You know, to answer that question, what we're doing in this series is following the nation of Israel along 
as she leaves Israel and then moves on in the promised land. And in that journey, it becomes a metaphor for us in how to carve out a godly culture and what the elements are within that godly culture. The first of these, as Dan pointed out last week, was law. I mean, as you see the children of Israel leave Egypt, as they move into the wilderness on their way to the promised land, the first thing God does, the first element that He drops in their lap in creating this new society, this great society, this godly culture, is that He offers them the law. And by that we understand that a godly culture is always boundaried by law. And in Exodus 20, God gives in Israel ten succinct laws for carving out this godly culture. And not surprisingly, in light of what we've read already in the Scripture and seen in Tozer's book, the first has to do clearly and simply with God Himself. You see, how we think about God is the cornerstone of your life and of the church. It is the most important thing about us, and I hope now you can turn now to Exodus chapter 20, and let's begin to read the first of these ten great commandments, the law. Exodus 20 says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now there's four general observations I want us to look at because it introduces the rest of the Ten Commandments and also says something about the first. And then they're in your outline. But in verse 1, I want you to see that we're reminded that the true God is a God of revelation. It's a God of revelation. <clears throat> you know, Psalm 19 begins by saying, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And I love that because there are certain moments in my life and in your life, in anyone's life, where you are overcome by the transcendent quality of God just by being a part of His community in nature. Uh, you've stood, haven't you, before a great sunset, and for a moment, as C.S. Lewis has said, you are drawn into that sunset for just a brief moment, and suddenly God is bigger than anything you've ever imagined. You stood before some great mountain range, or looked into the heavens on a clear night, and suddenly God is the transcendent God. God Almighty. And you're overcome with that silent speech that pours forth to you as clearly as words could come from the lips of another person. And you understand something about God. Satellites give us this picture of our little planet in this solar system and universe that is unbelievably cold and sterile. And yet in the midst of it all, there's this little tiny grain of sand called earth brimming with life. You see that as some of our astronauts have, and they're overcome with the presence of God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. But you know, in all of that, there remain some unanswerable questions about God to us. How do I relate to this God? What does this God think of me? What does He expect? What's going to happen to me? What does He require of me? Does He even think of me, this speck on this grain of sand in this vast universe? See, those are unanswerable questions that the heavens do not answer 
but the God of revelation does. And that's why I love these opening words. It says, then God spoke. Aren't you glad that He spoke? Sometimes we just gloss over that. But aren't you glad that He took the time to alleviate the guesswork of life? You stumbling and bumbling through life knowing there's an almighty God, a creative, intelligent being far beyond yourself, but you have no idea how to relate to that God? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed are our treasure. They belong to us that we may follow these words, that we might go on and have success in life. God is a God of revelation. Then God spoke all these things. That's where, revela or that's where culture begins. Not with man saying, how can I think it up? How can I create a world that will be utopian, like Karl Marx or some other foolish figures of history now declared? But God speaks. And God declares, and God reveals. And culture starts with that. Secondly, God is a God of history. Look at the first line of verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You know, that statement reminds me that life is not a series of accidents, whether good or bad but rather sewn into the fabric of every life in this room is a thread in your life called the active presence of God. He's there. He's moving. Whether you realize it or not. And some are so foolish they never even notice. He's initiating. He's speaking. He's shaping. And He's protecting. And all of that ultimately shapes in some form or fashion your destiny ultimately. Just like He shaped theirs. You see, it wasn't because of Israel's good guy image that He released them from, Israel, uh, from Egypt. It wasn't because they themselves took the initiative to find that escape from bondage and slavery that they had suffered under for 400 years. It was at the initiation of God towards man, actively involved in history, that ultimately shaped Israel's destiny. And I want you to know, it's the same with every person here. In each of us, many of the events in your life will begin and end, not because you thought it up, not because you sought it out, not because you chose to make it happen. It began because there is a God of history. And God is writing your story from beginning to end. Thirdly, God is a God of redemption. Notice the next line of verse 2. Who brought you out out of the house of slavery. You know, God hates slavery. God is a lover of freedom. But He is the one who, because He is the sovereign God, has the privilege of defining what freedom is if we would but listen. The true God is always moving us to freedom. It was Jesus who said, you shall know the truth as He pointed to Himself, and the truth shall set you free. He is that kind of God. And I know if I am in step with the true God, regardless of my circumstances or situation, if I am in line with the true God, I am always moving to a place called freedom. If I'm not in step with Him, or I'm worshiping a false god, it's leaving me 
and leading me into greater bondage. God is a God of redemption. And then finally, notice in the verses that fall in 3 through 17, you'll know them as the Ten Commandments, these ten moral absolutes, we discover that God is a God of morality. <laughs> now I want you to listen very closely. As a God of revelation, God is a clear voice to us. As a God of history, God is involved with us. As a God of redemption, God is for us. And as a God of morality, God is dead serious. You hear that? And that's just the way it should feel. We like the first three in America today. But the last one bites. It bites us. And we're not sure whether we like it. You see, man's nature pauses before God of morality. It pauses. We're not sure we want someone to tell us how to live. And we resist that, even as we smile. Inside there is a sense of balking, even rebellion. And even as our own culture degenerates before our eyes, and as its promises fail us again and again, even as our need for God grows, we're not sure. We have a question mark about this God of morality. We like it that God speaks. We like the fact that God is involved in our history, yes. That He is for us, yes. That He wants us to submit to Him, I don't know. I'm not sure. Not really. Not sincerely. And therein lies the weakness of so many lives. We want a God who is user-friendly, don't we? Not obedience-friendly. User-friendly. Larry Crabb has said this about the growing hunger for God that he senses in American society today. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, Our culture's, our culture's hunger appeals to a deeply felt need for something bigger than ourselves. I see that now everywhere in the Little Rock community. There is a hunger from all quarters for something bigger than ourselves. We've, we finally ended up at the shores of bankruptcy in the me generation. So now we're wanting to go outside ourselves. And he says, I recognize that and I see that. But listen, he says, but, listen carefully, but it does not, this hunger, it does not disrupt us when we need, where we need to be disrupted in our moral sense. It ends up offering only what liberal Christianity has offered for years, a religious approach to life, consisting in a God without wrath, bringing people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. See, we balk before the God of morality. But the cross of Jesus Christ says God is a God of morality and that He is dead serious about it. And we need to listen. I want you to see how this seriousness is set forth in the Declaration of Deuteronomy. You might just turn a few pages forward to Deuteronomy 30. You'll see this same exhortation given as God speaks to Moses as the people are moving into the Promised Land. And He sets this declaration 
And it is a declaration of life, as these commandments are a declaration of life. But what a great statement. These are statements that need to be on walls as well, this passage in Deuteronomy, starting in verse 15. Because God stands before a crumbling culture, or a culture who has at least paused to reconsider its direction. And as they sit there in the land of Moab, about to go into the promised land, he offers these words in verse 15. See? See? I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are going to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you, you, you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days. I like what Dan said last week when he talked about God setting forth these ten absolutes. That in setting them forth, God was simply pointing the finger to life. These are not restrictions. These are highways to life that He is offering. God is a God of morality. Now with these general observations, I want you to look at the first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before Me. I know a number of scholars who feel that the preposition before is a bit inadequate. It falls short of the Hebrew word that it's trying to express. Better, they say, would be the preposition besides. You might insert it there in your Bible. Some of you, it's in the margin of your Bible. You shall have no other gods besides Me. The great German commentators, Kyle and Dalich, point out that in using besides, the commandment prohibits two things. Polytheism, the worship of so-called other gods, and idolatry, the worship of anything that thinks it's God, but it's not. The God of the Bible, the God of Revelation, wants us in thinking about a culture, a godly culture to know from the outset. Two things. Two things that you can count on through the lens of this first commandment. First, there are no other gods besides God. Now let me tell you, that is a revolutionary truth in our day. In a new age kind of culture where people are proclaiming all kinds of gods including themselves, but where students at the university hear that there are other religions on the same plane as Christianity, that there is a pluralism, a level playing field upon which all gods can exist and work together is heresy. Because the God of revelation, of history, of redemption and morality stands there and says, hey, hey, there are no other gods except me. 
That's it. In Isaiah 44, he says this, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it if he is. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time of my establishing people. <laughs> from establishing just the very first person. Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place because they can't. And then he says, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I long since announced it to you and declared it? And are you not my witnesses? Is there any God besides me, he asked? Or is there any other rock? And then God himself answers. He says, I don't know of any. And if he doesn't know of any, then who would know of any? Second observation is to blow up something into a God, to inflate something into a pseudo-deity, is ultimately for everyone here a path to heartache. You know, I appreciated the remarks of Barry Lunny. A lot of you know Barry as being the quarterback at Arkansas for the things that he said about himself shortly before the season opened, back in August during those hot August practices. Barry said that without realizing it, football had become to him as a god. And I want you to know there's an insight there because idols often enter into our lives. If you remember your Greek mythology, the way the Trojan horse was brought into the city. It comes in as a gift. And our natural abilities oftentimes, whether it be for sports or for making money or for beauty or for power, they come in as a gift, but then slowly they turn into a god. And that's what he was talking about. Which in time betrays us the same way the Trojan horse betrayed the city because its contents were not friendly. They were infectious viruses that killed. They were enemy soldiers. Barry Lunny found out all that about himself the hard way, this idolatry of sports, and it hurt him. And that's what he was declaring in the paper that August. I got hurt by, by feeling and believing that way. But fortunately, as he goes on to say, it drove him to the true God. And I'm glad that he did. And just in time, I might add, before the season. Do you remember that? See, I happened on a trip to be going through Dallas, and so I took the time, as you might imagine, to go to the Cotton Bowl and watch them play SMU. And I wonder what it felt like when his old God failed him at the start of the game after starting 22 straight games when instead of choosing a senior, he chose a sophomore to start in his place. And you know, as an athlete, that hurt. But it didn't hurt near as bad when it wasn't a God. And I wonder what it felt like when you were on the four-inch line about to win the game and you fumbled and you lost the game. See, that hurt. But it didn't destroy. You know why it didn't destroy? because it was no longer a God. Well, seasons and times change, and yesterday was a great day. Events have a way of turning themselves around, but I thought it was interesting when they were interviewing Barry. He said, he gives thanks to God who works all things together for good to those who love him. And I wanted to add, 
even in spite of SMU, right? <laughs> That's right. The best audible, you know, ladies know what an audible is? An audible is when they get to the line of scrimmage and they change plays when they check over the defenses. The best audible that Barry Lunny has ever done in four seasons at Arkansas is when he got to the line of life and he changed God's. And I want you to know it's the same for us. It is the same for us because when you change God's and you turn to the real God, the true God, the God of history, the God of redemption, the God of morality, you know what you find? You find the door of freedom. That's what you find. I want you to notice on your outlines, Roman numeral three, the four things that I think this commandment applies to. There's at least four, there are probably more. The first is our thoughts, our thoughts. Let me read another segment of A.W. Tozer for you. He says this, without doubt the weightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God should be of immense importance to us. Why? Because the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems for he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at most cannot concern him for very long. For the one mighty single burden of eternity now begins to press down upon him instead. And that mighty weight is his obligation to God. God. A weight. You know, we rarely hear words like that printed today because God is always the God who's available to us. God is the God who always excuses us. God is the God who always comes running to us to talk to us about us. But the God of Tozer is a weight. And He turns that weight to press down on us our obligation to Him. And I have to confess, I'm not at times happy about a weighty God. I like a weightless God. One who we can manage and use. One who relieves my stress rather than one who demands that I give Him honor and glory and obedience. I want you to know, of those two viewpoints, I think Tozer is much closer to the truth. Come close to that when we start out with His first commandments saying, no other gods. None. There's only one person who should be in that lofty place and it should be a weighty place and that's me. So let me ask you this question because I think it's a good application question here at this moment. Does your God carry weight in your thoughts? You know how when people start talking about their investment or their retirement, the atmosphere gets a little sober? Because man, they want to be sure that they get at least 8-10%. You just feel the seriousness of the conversation. Or when they start talking about their kids and how their kids are going to turn out and what they need to be and be involved, everything turns a little more serious. It can still be fun, but it's serious. There's a certain weightiness to the conversation. When you think about God, is there that kind of weightiness to your thoughts? Or is it just kind of weightless? Do you feel His holy pressure? before you use your money the way you want to use it? 
Do you feel his pressure on how to manage your time? How to be married? What to do with your life? I mean, when you think about him in relationship, do you feel that pressure, that weight of responsiveness to him? That's whether you have a weighty God or a weightless one. You know, um, there's a picture in the, the bulletin of men's fraternity. We had a great day, and I'm so thankful that one of my good friends, Bill Smith, chose to kind of MC men's fraternity. But I want to tell you, uh, about a year ago, Bill called me late one night, kind of panicked, and you'd be panicked too if you just found out you had cancer. And he asked me to come over and pray uh, with him and his wife, and I did. And it was a great time to be together in the midst of a situation out of control. A year later, Bill came and met with our elders, and he's been throwing himself as you would throw yourself on the mercy of God, and he was giving us, thankfully, a good report after this year bout with cancer. And we were all thankful for that. But in the midst of that discussion, as we were giving praise to God for the good things that he had been doing in Bill's life, Bill made an interesting statement. And it's the statement of one who feels the weight of God. And here's what he said. He said, in pressing God for healing, God began to press back. And in time, I found that the issue was not healing. It was surrender. Surrender. And you know what that twist is? That twist is from someone on earth demanding this great God do everything for them to realizing that my life, this brief speck of time, is to be to the glory of God, and however He uses me is His weight. And I'm but a vessel for His glory in life or in death, the blessing or the curse. But that turns an individualized, saturated American culture on its head because we want other gods before Him. Listen, a clear mark of godliness and that God is carving out in your life a godly culture is that in your daily thoughts you feel the weight of God, His holy pressure to make Him your only God. Second, concerns our time. You know, we need time every week to worship God. We need quiet times. We need times where we're with other believers. We need times on a regular basis where we're worshiping God together like we are today. And I want you to know, one of my concerns from time to time is that as people come into our body or as you go on in your life with God over time, that you think that worship is something that's an elective. And I want you to know it's not an elective. It's an essential. The first commandment should affect our time. And you know why? Because we become what we worship. We become what we worship. C.K. Chesterton put it this way, and I want you to listen closely. He says, when we cease to take the time, I'm talking about a regular basis, and that's why there's a Sabbath, and that's why the church gathers together, that's why you need to be alone with God, why you need to carve it out even when it's not convenient. But he says, when we cease to take the time to worship the true God, we then do not go on and worship nothing, we worship anything. And why? Because we're called to worship. It's in our instinct to worship. And if we allow us to get our beam off of the true God, it'll only go and fix itself on something real quickly. 
to lesser gods, to that which is not a god at all. I'm convinced that one of the reasons so many Christians in this day struggle, why they whine, and they do whine a lot, and why we live weak, compromised lives is because we have not taken the time to cultivate a deep worship of the true God that inspires us, that motivates us, that captivates our imagination. We're comfortable raising our hands and saying, woo pig suey. But we feel a certain alienation in the house of God, allowing ourselves at the top of our lungs to sing praises to Him and be totally lost in His glory. I'm not saying that to beat us down, because we've got a great church here. But you know, you can't just be busy in your religion and have it be effective. You've got to be in love. And when you're in love, you do things for your lover that you'd never do any other way. And that's what worship does. It captivates a love life with God. Third, I want you to notice the first commandment applies to things. And those things you might put in your notes, things that grow into idols. Remember the first commandment says, no other gods, just me. Just me. The second commandment that we will look at next week will have much more to say about idolatry, but I want to answer just two questions this morning about idols in our life. Here's the first question. How does something good become an idol? Because by the way, it's not bad things that become idols. They're usually good things that become idols. It could be football. It could be a person that you're investing your life in. It could be a career, money, anything. But when does something good go and grow into being something that's an idol? And I think the answer is this. It's when you start believing that it can be counted on consistently to give you life. To give you life. When that subtle transition occurs, you have an idol in your life, not a good thing anymore. And remember how John closes that first epistle in 1 John to a close. I mean, he said all these things about following Jesus Christ, but if tonight you turn there and look at his last statement in John, 1 John 5.21, he closes the book this way to the church. He says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. How the book closes. Just with a short, terse, guard yourselves from idols. Second question is this, how can you tell you've got an idol in your life? That'd be a good question to answer, wouldn't it? How, do you, how can you tell you've got an idol in your life? I think the answer is, is when loyalty to it, whatever that it is, leads you to disbelieve or disobey God. Now here's how that works. Let's say you're in love. You're thinking about getting married. Or let's say that this week somebody offered you a new job in a new city with a huge bonus and you're just thrilled. Or let's say you, you've been thinking about buying a new car, a new house, or a new something, and your eyes have got affixed on that something, whatever it is. You're excited about it, and someone has the audacity, the arrogance to say to you, have you prayed about that? And immediately you feel threatened. Immediately you feel fear, or maybe even anger, or you even get offended. Now, maybe they shouldn't have asked it that abrupt, but the point is this. When whatever it is that we have or want to embrace, if we've not brought that to God, 
with a submissive, expectant spirit that He would only approve of those things that are the best for us and guard us from that which would hurt us. If we can't do that, then we've got an idol in the making. We've got something in the making there that will rise up and take the place of the God we love. You know, when that happens, you know what then goes on to happen when we embrace an idol? The Scripture says we end up being enslaved to it. And let me talk just a moment about that. Because you know why good things that become idols become enslavements? Because they can never deliver fully like only God can. Idols can't give us everything we think they can. A marriage partner, now here's this couple and they're in love, and they're going to get married, and they put so much expectation into one another. To the place it becomes idolatry in a way that they don't even understand. But then they get married and they expect that that marriage partner will give them all of life for about the first year. Then they begin to be disappointed. And the idol now can't give them all of life. Or the guy who's been killing himself for 15 years to get this job promotion, to get this position, and then he finally gets it and he thinks it's going to give him all of life. And then it doesn't. And when it doesn't, he begins or she begins to seek in an unhealthy way, maybe even an addictive, compulsive way, to extract from this mini-God, so to speak, an unrealistic level of life that that person or thing can't give. It, the spouse may want to give you life, but they can't be a God to you. And so you press upon them more and more expectations to give them more and more, to satisfy my life. And all you find is heartache there. And it eventually fails you. Often when an idol fails us, we don't repent of our idolatry because we've never put the label idolatry on it. We just thought our spouse failed us. Our job failed us. That last drink didn't give us the high that we needed. No, instead we go get another idol who we now believe with the same delusion will then go on and give us this fulfillment. And so we get another man for a spouse or another woman or we drink even more or we seek more power or we buy more things or we build another house, we buy another car or we go even more escape into pleasure. But you know what that ultimately brings, don't you? That compulsion, that addictive Behavior, it brings enslavement. Your career kills you. You fail again and again at relationships. We have to send you away for a 30-day treatment program because those idols could never give that kind of life. Only God can. And that's why He says to a people beginning to carve out a godly culture and a godly lifestyle, have no other gods besides me. The last thing a command, this first commandment applies to is our throne. I want to close with this, but one of the things I liked about Campus Crusade's little four spiritual laws that I think was so healthy for a guy who had hardly ever been to church all his life, and he was just a 19-year-old college student wandering around at the university. But when I looked at that little yellow book, I got to the back and they'd put two little circles there. And inside the circles were little thrones. 
and on the throne of one was self, and God was outside the life, and on the other was God on the throne and self inside the life, but God leading the life. And there's a little question on there that says, which of these two lifestyles would you like? But the imagery has remained in my mind ever since 1968, and it's a good imagery. And that is, at the very center of my existence, there is a throne. There's a throne there. And what I put on that throne leads to a blessing or a curse. It does. A blessing or a curse. Whose reputation, whose authority, whose leadership carries weight every day in my life? It's the person on the throne. And I want some of you to know this morning, as we've listened to this first commandment, if you are going to have a godly, personal culture, then Jesus Christ has to be on that throne. Unreservedly. No exceptions. Surrendered to the God of heaven and earth who says, I have life for you. And there has to be a total sellout so that every day and in every way, with every decision, your first thought, your most important thought is God. What does He want? And I will promise you on the authority of His Word, if you have that most important first thought, you're going to move to freedom. You're going to move to life. You're going to move to satisfaction. You're going to understand before your last breath what this life is all about. If you want that, then bow with me. Close your eyes. And let's ask God to deliver us into the hands of this first commandment. And if there's something I've said today that you say, you know, I've got to release that. I've got to let that go. That person, that thing, it's blocking my freedom. It's threatening my life. Would you let it go? No one can do that but you. But to start a godly culture, there can be no other God but God. Father, we thank You for these lofty thoughts that take us deep inside ourselves into that canyon that leads to finally that dead end where we find either us or You in place. How I pray, Lord, for each of us with all the things going on in our life. Oh God, I pray that You would help us find a place to cultivate the worship of You so that then You would lead us to life. I pray for my brothers and sisters, many of whom are probably here today with things in their life crowding out that space or taking that place that You rightly deserve. I pray that You would help them this day. Grant them mercy and grace to let those things go, to believe You for bigger and better things. We offer this up to You, the God that there is no one like, and to Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. 
You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.